Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, I thought it might be a little bit of a problem because we don't have this archived for all the games, right? We, we're not going to be able to just pull up Austin Matthews' four-goal game or any of the game sevens of the last decade uh, and, you know, break them down as we might want to. But thankfully enough, one game on our list when we were coming up with this idea uh, was Matt Sundin's 500th goal against the Calgary Flames back in 2006. And it was on TV Saturday night in place of what would be normal games. But of course, the season is paused right now due to the COVID-19 outbreak. So we were thrown a bit of a bone, Mike Stevens, and we're going to we're gonna throw it back to the days of actual Live Laugh Leaf post-game podcast with a game that happened, you know, 14 years ago or so. I was 12 when this game happened. So this, or 10, sorry. I was 10 years old when this game happened. So that was, I remember wow. watching it too. Like, in I think in my grandparents' basement, it was awesome. This is a, like, I was expecting going back to watch this game because it was so early. Like, it was such a 2006 kind of game. I was expecting a slow, arduous uh, you know, like I know it was pa- past the lockout, so clutching grab was trying to get phased out. But I was expecting, you know, just a bunch of goons going at each other. This this game rocked, man. And it's not just because the Leafs won, because of the historic moment at the end. Like there were twists and turns and goals and hits, and oh boy, it was great. I was gonna ask you where you were because I remember this pretty vividly as well. I think I was in my last year of minor hockey, so if you were twelve or ten, I was ten. Yeah, I was seventeen or eighteen, maybe. And we, were, I remember being in a bar, like, post-game after we had already played a game. So, you know, when all the parents want to get liquored up after a minor hockey game, like, that is the normal thing that happens in yeah, minor hockey in say, Canada. So you were all, legal age back no, then. No, all, all the, so we got, like, the plastic cups of Coke going, and all the parents are getting just boozed up at the bar, and we're in this, like, little corner trying to do what, you know, 17-year-olds do in that situation. Uh, and I remember looking up at the TV when we were doing God knows what, and Matthew, or Matthews, the old Matthews, Matt Sundin stepped over the blue line and fired that shot past Mika Kiprasov. So it truly was a where were you moment. Uh, a little bit easier for me to remember, even though I was at a bar uh, that night. But uh, I guess you remembered as well. I was worried that you wouldn't have even had any recollection of this, but you were uh, you were lining up to do this one. So I'm sure you had uh, obviously some memories of it as well. Well, I wanted to do this one, A, because it was on TV the other night, so we didn't have to, like, break into the NHL vault to find the footage. But also that this was, like, I remember even being a 10-year-old, and I was in the middle of minor hockey. Like, this was right at the time when um, I thought, you know, like, Alexander Suglobov, for example, was in this game, and I thought he was going to be great. Turns out, you know, how wrong... 
I know, right? Like how I, I can't believe was. you remember that him. But like when I saw his name, I was like, "Who the hell is that?" Uh, and just a note, I was gonna bring him up later. I am thankful that we got to rewatch one of Alexander Suglovov's eighteen career games today. He Played was eighteen games, and he was front and center, kind of for this. He one. was the guy who, on uh, it was funny because he would be called up from the Marlies because they were they were and they were a very new team around this time, and he would either. He would either be on Matt, like Matt Sundin's wing, or he'd be in the AHL. Like there'd be no in between with him. It was the most frustrating thing ever. It, they'd be they'd call him up, put him on the first liner, the Matt the Sundin line, and kind of just let him ride. And then you know he'd have a bad game, they send him back down. It was like Jeremy Williams, except Sugubov didn't score every time he called. He got called up. So this was this was just like so many names, so many old names on this on, in this game. You know, like it, it, I I can't wait to get through it or go through it with you. You have an incredible memory as a 10-year-old. That's pretty remarkable. Okay, I think uh, in the the, uh, respect of, like, you know, our listeners, because they probably didn't watch this game or may not have watched this game, so I feel like uh, we have to do a little scene set. So it was October 14th, 2006. It was the Leafs' sixth game of the 2006-07 season. Matt Sundin is sitting on 497 career goals. Obviously, it was inevitable that he would hit 500 at some point on the season. Uh, He had one goal and three assists in the first five games to start the year, so it was coming sooner than later, uh, but it wasn't expected, obviously, or in the wildest imaginations, it wasn't going to turn out the way it did. Paul Maurice is the coach of the Leafs. It's his first season after Pat Quinn was fired. John Ferguson Jr. is the general manager. He had just traded for Andrew Raycroft. Of course, Tuka Rass went to the Boston Bruins for Andrew Raycroft. Uh, We're one season after the Eric Lindros experiment. Ty Domi had just retired. They're two seasons also into the salary cap era. So it was $44.4 million teams could spend <laughs> this year. It was $39 million the year before. So that's, that's insane. That's obviously it had a huge impact on the Maple Leafs. This financial, uh, the, the changing of financial dynamics. The year before the lockout, the Leafs had, in addition to, you know, Sundin, Tucker, McCabe, Coberlet, Joe Newendike, Gary Roberts, Owen Nolan, Alex McGillney. Brian Leach, Ron Francis, Ed Belfort, Michael Renberg, Robert Reichel. Like they had sort of not, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's a stacked team. It was a little bit of a sort of gray beards that had come to play for the Leafs in hopes of winning a Stanley Cup with Pat Quinn and the good teams they had before then in the early 2000s. Um, But it's the change in salary dynamics. It surely had a huge uh, impact on this team uh, as all the NHL teams tried to adjust and coming out of the shoot after the lockout, it was the Hurricanes beating the Edmonton Oilers in the Stanley Cup final. So it was kind of the whole NHL world had just been sort of tipped onto its head. And the Leafs were trying to adjust to that at this point in time. Just look at the like you could tell that the salary cap really impacted the Leafs by looking at how kind of top heavy their lineup is. Because you look at their blue line a lot. It's, what, what really stood out to me about this game is that a lot of the problems that plague the Leafs now continued to plague them back then. The blowing leads, you know, the the defensive problems, all that kind of stuff. But, like, look at their blue line, for example. It was Coberlet and McCabe who were great, and I want to get into that. That is, like, I, we did not appreciate how good they were in their prime when they were playing in the Leafs. They were incredible. But then, like, after that, it's Ian White and Hal Gill, which is okay, and then Mark Bell and Jay Harrison as the third pairing. And it's, like, it just, that is a cliff. And then even in the forward lines, it's like Chad Kilgers, you know, bringing up the rear and all that and at Suglobov and guys like that and it's just wild um this was like this was just such a really interesting 
like watch and era to look for because there's a lot of like in the game there are a lot of young players or I guess like in at the time young players who are now like either graybeards or retired like Mark Giordano who we're gonna get into I guess scores his first and second career NHL goals in this game I had no idea I for- totally forgot that happened He's there. Dion Phaneuf is the hot shot. They were talking about how he should have been. This is his sophomore season. And Cassie Campbell was on the broadcast. I think this was, this was her first game on the broadcast. She did a great yeah. job with the legendary Bob Cole. Um, and they were talking about how Dion Phaneuf should have been nominated for the Norris last year as a rookie. And he eventually did get nominated, I think, uh, at the end of the season we were watching. It, like, it, it, it's crazy. Alex Steen is in his prime. You know, uh, Matt Stajan, who I think just retired, but he's in his prime. Like, it's... It's crazy. Jerome McGinley, like, another thing, too, and again, we're going to get into all these things, but just off the top of my head, like, Mika Kiprasov, we, like, the fact that we don't dedicate, like, half an hour every day to talk about Mika Kiprasov as, like, a country is insane <laughs> because he was so good. He would, like, this guy, there was, there was a power play at the start of the game where he stopped, like, six shots in less than a minute, and it was just, like, mind-boggling we haven't seen calgary hasn't seen gold attending like that since he retired and you know we certainly haven't so it's 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 wild you're right mika kiprasov was definitely at the height of his powers the flames just to finish sort of teeing up everything flames were only two and a half years removed from a stanley cup final appearance and they were still a pretty elite team despite sort of being hurt by the financial dynamic change uh and just simply not scoring many goals this was kind of a barren version of that team uh, but Kiprasov had just won the Vezina Trophy, and this was prime to close to prime Jerome Ginla as well. So those were the two, two main players for the Flames. Now, I want to go through line by line. I wrote them all down. Yes. And I'll do, like, first line and just, like, give you a chance to react. If I have anything to react, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll stop for just a second. But I want to run through these somewhat quickly just Can't to wait. sort of go through every name that was involved in this in this game because there was some sort of random names, some maybe cult heroes, some guys that we appreciated uh, way back when and sort of forgot that they were either on this team in this situation or whatever. So random ma- is the best way to describe it. Like ra- that's the perfect word. Random. 100%. There were just some random names. We'll, we'll get to it. But Jeff Friesen, like what? Yeah. Jeff Friesen. That was Chuck so weird. Chuck Chuck, I love Chuck Kobasu. We'll get I know. Kobasu. Okay, do you yeah. want to go uh, top line to, uh, like, Leafs top line and Flames top line to compare, or do you want to run through team, then the next team? Uh, let's just do all Leafs and then all Flames. Okay, so Leafs top line, Darcy Tucker, Matt Sundin, Kyle Wellwood. Oh. Kyle Wellwood is, like, he w- the fact that we don't talk about Kyle Wellwood that much like this this guy I know he never hit like 50 points or whatever but this game Kyle Wellwood was like on one like he was giving me serious Mitch Marner vibes in this game his assist on the first goal in the power play the back door uh to Darcy Tucker when you really slow it down he had like negative you know he had like a one negative centimeter of space to fit that puck through and he did he was this guy was absolutely incredible and then so in my mind I'm thinking during the game Man, like what? What happened? Like I know Kyle Wellwood had injuries. Like what? But still, like this guy was so good. And then there's a point in the game where he tries to cut across the blue line and almost gets straight up decapitated by a Flames defenseman. He gets out of the way of it, but he still goes falling. I'm like, ah, that's what happened. There, uh, see, like he he wasn't able to get around it. He just like if Kyle Wellwood take that Kyle Wellwood, put him into this era, he would dominate. This guy was incredible. Just not fast enough, though. It's like, I, yeah. I know I don't want to bring up like what people used to say about him and not working hard enough. But if there ever was a game that showed like, wow, he had all the talent, but like 
maybe you couldn't put it all together for a prolonged stretch of time. Like it kind of looked that way. Like if you've seen just what, you know what happened to his career and then seeing that it was like, oh, what could have been? And that truly is sort of his career, right? What could have been? It is. Yeah, you're right. Like it's, 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 you know, unfulfilled expectations because he was so good in this game and he had such a good thing going, especially on the power play with Tucker. And it just like, as we know now, it just fizzled. And Darcy Tucker being like, I don't know, at the the height of his, like, okay, eight eight minutes into the game, Tucker had scored and drilled someone into the boards from behind. Like, it was the full Darcy Tucker Tucker experience. As much as it was the full Matt Sundin experience, it was the full Darcy Tucker experience as well. It was, yeah, like, I'm glad you brought up that hit because he, he, it's Stefan Yell, who I didn't, I again, random name, didn't know, but he like murders Stefan Yell along the boards. And the, and the broadcast, it's funny how, how, like, the, the way we talk about hockey has changed in the 13 years or 12 years since that's since that's happened. I think it's 14 now, actually. It's crazy. Um, in that, like Tucker goes in and he just smokes yell along the boards. Like it was, it was a hit from behind. It was rough. That would get you like an automatic like five game suspension or uh, no, it's Paro. So it get you like a really bad fine, but still. And then. But, like, the broadcast is going, oh, I think he toe-picked and then he accidentally fell. No, Tucker didn't even, like, hesitate. He just killed him. And yeah. two, they were debating on whether it was a penalty or not. And I'm like, this is a, this is a crime. Like, this, this man just committed a crime on the ice. And they're like, ah, is it callable? I don't know. Well, it's a new NHL. And it's, it was crazy. Yeah, Darcy Tucker, like, he also, he was way faster than we give him credit for. Like he, there is a point where I know Dion Phaneuf was never the fastest guy, but this is a guy. This is Dion Phaneuf who is young. I think he's like 21 at this point. He just got nominated for the Calder. He's going to be a Norris nominee this year. And and Darcy Tucker twice in this game completely burns him on the rush. Like th- it, it's this is such a blast in the past because there are so many good pieces on this Leafs team, but they just had nothing around their good pieces, and that's what where it all fell apart. Okay, second line. This is a favorite of mine. I mean, this is so random and so weird. <laughs> Chad Kilger. Oh, yeah. John Pohl, Alex Steen. So, obviously, one of these players sort of made something of their career. Alex Steen's still playing uh, and still, you know, not a great player anymore. But, I mean, he was on a cup-winning team last year, so he can't be too much of a liability. Uh, John Pohl, though. I mean, talking about those Toronto Marlies years, he had that huge year with the Marlies, and then within three to four or five years, he had went through the Maple Leafs and was out of the out of hockey seemingly entirely. And Chad Kilger was the biggest uh, point of frustration for me in this entire game. I could not believe how much of a waste of space he seemed to be in this game. It was really frustrating for me watching Chad Kilger. I was getting irrational. How much he fell down. I was just getting, down mad. So I was getting mad at a game played 14 years ago, and it was about a guy that I haven't thought about in probably 13 and a half years. So, uh, yeah, that was that was one of the, the main points for me was, what is Chad Kilger doing on this second line? He fell down so much. Like, that's what... He also started overtime. I know. Oh my! I know there was a, it was they were shorthanded, but it was like I th- I'm pretty sure in my mind it was it was uh it was Kilger, Stajan I think Stajan or Steen. And no, then no, it was Hall- two. De- it was two defensemen I think. No. Oh no! Yeah, you're right. So it was Kilger and then Ian White and Hal Gill who started overtime. It wasn't McCabe and Caverly. I don't know who. It was. No, it was I, Hal Gill who it started was it. Yeah, because Hal-, Hal Gill was definitely on for the goal as well. I'm, we'll get to that. It might have uh, been McCabe and Caverly. I, Whatever. Way, I mean, either way, you're starting Chad Kilger over Matt Sundin, and clearly it didn't matter much because spoiler, Matt Sundin scores in overtime. But uh, it was it was 
I don't know. I just got mad at Chad Kilgore today, and I didn't expect to be. Okay, third line. Isolation uh, day nine. <laughs> Getting mad at yeah. Chad Kilgore. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, line three without Nick Antropov, who was probably hurt. Yeah, you can game. just assume that Nick Antropov was hurt whenever. Carlo Koliakovo also hurt. So two, you know, Shocker. guys that should have been there who are always hurt. So uh, many TSN personalities on this team, by the way. It, it, it really Koliakovo was. and O Dog. Probably more to come as well. Like I feel yeah. like Stajan and Giordano, like these are layups for future uh, broadcasting gigs. Anyway, oh yeah, Ponikarovsky, Stajan, O'Neill is the third line. I mean, that's uh, that's sick. an interesting third line to say the least. Just random pieces. Watching Jeff O'Neill is fun, given that we probably watch him on radio and, and television uh, a lot these days, being that he has such a, a high-profile gig. Ponikarovsky impressed me in this one, though. This That that third line is awesome. On paper, whoo, I love that third line. Like, it, like it, it's because normally, like, when... I, I believe the line would have been um, Sundin, uh, Antropov, and Ponikarovsky. The skyscraper line is what they call it. The skyline, I think, is what mm-hmm. they called it, because they're all so tall. But I love that. Like, it's it's Stajan, Ponikarovsky, and O'Neill. Those are all guys who have some offensive punch, who O'Neill's a bit of a, you know, just a bit of a pest. Uh, Ponikarovsky was like a very underrated kind of, you know, good for maybe 50 points a year kind of guy. And then Matt Stajan was Matt Stajan. He was still relatively young at this point and, uh, and, you know, and rocking it. And it's also funny to watch, like, you know, him and, like, Dion Phaneuf playing the same game. Like, they're eventually you know, part of one of the biggest trades in, in Leafs and Flames history together. But yeah, like that, I loved that third line. That was a great line. And it's also really funny to watch Jeff O'Neill play hockey back in the day. Cause you know, he was probably like hung over during the game or something. It was pretty funny, but like it was a c- economy of movements with him. Like he, it seemed like for the whole game, uh, or at least in the offensive zone, he had his stick raised. Like he was waiting for a pass, not really moving much, but drifting around in areas where he might get a puck. It was pretty funny watching him just because in isolation, he wasn't moving all that much, but he was sort of being an Im- impact player still regardless, which was kind of interesting. Uh, I want to know how many strides he took all game. Exactly. It would have been yeah. different to see his career. Like I'd like to watch a game maybe five years earlier when he was really shining with the, maybe five, seven, five to seven years earlier when he's really shining with the Carolina Hurricanes. But uh, this was sort of late career O'Neill sort of adapting to a situation. I think he did play a lot with Sundin that year. It was his last year, uh, but he didn't get any time other than a little bit on the power play uh, with Sundin in that game. Fourth line, Bates Battaglia. Was he uh, on the Amazing Race? Is that an Amazing Race guy? I don't know, man. I think like... he won the Amazing Race. I might be completely wrong, but Bates Battaglia. Uh, Alexander Suglobov, you're the expert on that. And Wade Belak. Wade Belak was a ghost out there. Yeah, I, I like you mentioned. He didn't him now play and... much at all. I don't. We have ice time. Actually, I have it pulled up here. Let me see how much did he play. Uh, he played forty seconds. What? Are you serious? Wade Belak <laughs> had one shift and he played forty seconds. Did he get Maybe hurt when we just didn't hurt. know about it? He was on. He was like celebrating the goal at the end. That fourth line did not play much at all, though. They he were basically forty seconds. They're basically rolling three lines. Yeah, so the like the ice the ice time for this Bataglia was three oh three. He had four shifts, and Wade Belak had one shift. It was forty seconds, and then at the end, uh, and then also Suglobov had three shifts, and it was two minutes and twenty nine seconds. Yeah, I wanted more. What Suglubov. is the point? I wanted more Suglobov. Yeah, everyone wants more Suglobov. But the fact that Wade Belak played forty seconds in that game, he had one shift, is just that boggles my mind. Okay, first pairing and number one power play pairing. Brian McCabe, Thomas Caberlet, uh, 
I don't know if this was their best game, but it was definitely fun to watch these two guys sort of, you know, around or at the height of their, uh, you know, partnership. Uh, McCabe looked really dangerous at times. He looked pretty good defensively too. And Thomas Caberlet was just that quiet effectiveness that made him so, so, so good back then. This, I think this is a little, maybe like one season past when they were like at the peak of their powers. Cause I Mm -hmm. like, even, even though we gave like, Brian McCabe is another sort of casualty of Leafs fans running him out of town. Like I remember I took part in it myself as a kid, but what back right around the time where he then got traded to Florida, I think, or I think it was New York and then Florida or something like that. McCabe was like a whipping boy, but here, like those two, they play the way that the Leafs defense plays now. And that's a compliment in the sense that like they, they wait, they, they do they, like on the broadcast they are talking about it where like they're, they're, normally hockey players would just chip it up the ice and hope that someone gets it, you know, the Babcockian kind of way of doing stuff. But, you know, I think it was Caberlet was carrying out of the zone, didn't see anything, circled back, dropped it in McCabe, McCabe did the same thing. And I was like, what the, it's like watching, uh, it's like, it's like watching Morgan Riley out here. It's crazy. Um, Brian McCabe took a Tyson Berry amount of uh, point shots in this game. Yeah. What's the difference though? What's the difference? They hit the net. He, sh- he shot the buck hard, too. Ooh. It wasn't just something that, you know, hit Mika Kiprasov and just uh, rested right in front of him for him to cover up. Like, McCabe was dominant on one power play. I think it was a yeah. five-on-three. It was the five. Ev- I was just about to bring that He eventually set yeah. up Matt Sundin, but he was taking bombs from he the took- point. And because yeah. he took those bombs, he was able to fake Kiprasov, get it over to Sundin for an empty net goal. He took. I-, I counted them. He took four point shots in less than a minute on that two-on-three. Yeah, it was or five on three. It was crazy. And the like, we wouldn't necessarily vouch for the Maple Leafs or the current Maple Leafs doing that. But the difference was that the Maple Leafs were winning puck battles like crazy on those power plays. Like there was, it was so simple what they were doing. It was basically just the umbrella with McCabe, Sundin, and Caberlet. Caberlet at the top of the umbrella. They were working it around trying to get the best angles to the net, and they would shoot without hesitation. They'd be effective shots. And then whoever else was there, whether it was Tucker, O'Neill, or I guess Wellwood, were just scrapping for loose pucks and winning back possession so it was sort of a throwback power play obviously it would be being 14 years you know to the to the day that we're we're currently looking at the Leafs team but uh it was just sort of simplified and was like why aren't we seeing you know a little bit more of that where it's just a little bit of modest effectiveness and guys just winning battles and not immediately having to skate back once uh the other team get or the opposition gets control of the puck it was also like the the forwards specifically on the power play knew exactly what to do. Like I there is there is it, one stuck six out in my mind particularly where there was a loose puck it went along the boards and I think it was Steen Steen or Staging going at it in a one on one battle and then you see O'Neill cur like curl around and go right behind Staging to support him and then eventually that worked because the puck squirted out and O'Neill grabbed it and then eventually like started the cycle again. And yep. it's like, you don't see that. You see, like, on in, in today's Leafs, they kind of just stand around. Someone loses a battle. They don't really know what to do. They don't try and support. They kind of are sticking to their own positions. There was a lot of improvisation on this on this power play, and it really worked. Like, this was... I was surprised to see the Leafs were um, heading into this game. Their power play was, like, 14th in the league, even though I know it was only, like, six games in or something. Because this was, a like, a lethal power play. Like, these guys were just... Like other than the shorthanded goal they gave up, which I'm sure we'll get into as well, like they were caving Calgary in on their power play chances. Uh, we got a little off track there, but uh, we'll get to oh. the second pairing. Sorry, of... I'm just so excited. Justin. Oh no, all good. We uh, we got to the Leafs power play. Uh, you know we should be. They were they were only one for seven in the game, which isn't great. 
Uh, they had seven power plays. And we'll get to why they had seven power plays as well, which was, yeah, clearly there was an adjustment to the NHL's new rules. Second pairing, though, Ian White and Hal Gill. Uh, Ian White, I mean, I don't know when he was, you know, when his, his career was up and when it was down, just looking back off the top of my head. But he seemed to be like a defenseman that was sort of uh, either going to come into like uh, a big role for the Leafs at this point, or he was already there. Uh, but it seemed like he was a, definitely a guy that this team would want to build around based on one game, at least uh, alone. I worry that Ian White or that Travis Dermott is the current day Ian White. Because there's a lot of like it seems like he had a great game. He seemed there's like so many tools there. Everyone was and I remember back in the day, like Steve Dangle famously said, like he once wanted Ian White to be captain, stuff like that, which just shows that just how how bad the Leafs were back in the day after Sundin retired or left or whatever. But he was playing great. Like Ian White was was fantastic. He was he was small, which obviously didn't work too well in in the you know kind of uh, purgatory between the old clutch and grab and the the new skill but like it, it again he was a blast for the past and yet he was never he never hit the heights I think Leafs fans had for him like he never really took that next step and he's a lot like Dermot in the sense of like he, he was he looked great on paper everyone kind of had those fuzzy memories of his tools in there but yet he always just kind of stayed as like a fine depth defenseman throughout the rest of his career okay and the third pairing I this I is had, great I had everyone's name down pat but I got Bell Harrison as the third pair, I only remember Jay Harrison's first name. It's not Brendan Bell, is it? It's Mark Bell. No, Mark Bell's the other. It is Brendan. Is Mark it Bell's Brendan the, Bell? Oh, Mark I called Bell's, him Mark Bell. Mark Bell's the forward, so this is Brendan Bell for sure. So the Leafs acquired Mark Bell in the Vesa Toscala trade, and Mark Bell also had a criminal record at the time when he came over. I remember this. He was yes. part of the Vesa Toscala trade, and I think he was in like prison or something the year before when they acquired him, so that was a big hubaloo. It, it, yeah, it is Brendan Bell. He played yeah. he played 31 games. So it was uh, he only played 32 games total with the Maple Leafs. Obviously, he was a farmhand for a little while coming in. So this is a rare Mark Bell appearance, like it was a rare Alexander Suglobov appearance. Can we talk about the um, the discrepancy in ice time on the blue line? Okay. Do, you, do you have it? In, you, do you no, have it in you, front of you? No, I'll let you take that. Okay, so. Top, uh, top pairing is Caberlet and McCabe. Caberlet played, and keep in mind, this this game was a normal game. It only really went into overtime for less than a minute. Seven like, power plays, too, which is seven, worth keeping in mind. Yes, but again, like this was, a, this was a normal hockey game that went into overtime for less than a minute. Thomas Caberlet played 29 minutes and 41 seconds, had 31 shifts in that game. Brian McCabe played 30 minutes and 15 seconds, had 30 shifts in that game. That's crazy for a top pair top pair workload and then next we had ian white at 1930 and hal gill at 1840 which is fine that's like decent that's kind of around what you expect and then finally we ha- we had um where is it we had brendan bell at 1218 and then we had jay harrison where's jay harrison Jeez, louise uh, and jay harrison at 1121 so on the top end we had a guy playing half an hour and then the bottom end we had a guy playing 11 minutes it's sort of uh, you know Leafs a month ago territory. Yeah, like but but at, this was like a pretty other than Koliakovo a healthy blue line where it's like that was just playing Tyson Berry until he died because Martin Marincin was your like next best left defenseman. Yeah, I mean I think that's just another shining example of like the impacts that the salary cap had. Like this is obviously the second year, but they had money tied up. 
Now, I don't know if you could actually go back. I should have looked at that, but how much money they had in Sundin, because you could find out how much Sundin was making, I believe, but I don't know if you could get the full breakdown. But clearly, Sundin, Tucker, McCabe, Caberlet, those guys were making money. So they were trying to fill out a... Ro- like, they had to get rid of a bunch of guys. Uh, Gary Roberts, I think, was pinched out for salary cap reasons. Uh, and that's just what you got. Like, there was one team that reacted well to the changes in salary, which was the Detroit Red Wings. Somehow, they were ready that year with all that talent, and they fit all that talent under their salary cap, which was only $39 million, as I mentioned earlier. The fact that they kept it all together, like, that was Ken Holland's best work of all time. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's it, And it is wild to see that, like, the fact that he kept those guys all together and then his downfall was signing these depth guys to these huge contracts, which I think, which he, like, put a stop to to try and keep that team together. Like, it's, it's wild how he just completely veered off course towards the end of his Detroit tenure. It also clearly had an impact on the Calgary Flames. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this was like a shell of what I remembered, that 2004 team that went to the Stanley Cup final. Game seven, they should have won the Stanley Cup. Uh, if there was video review, they would have won the Stanley Cup. That that puck did go past the goal line before hitting the pad of Nikolai Habibulin, I believe it was. Yeah. It oh, was it was Habibulin. the Bulin wall. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, th- I mean, that was sort of an amazing moment in history. That was one of my, like, we're in the air, like this, again, this was like mid-high school for me. So these were like the best Stanley Cup runs of my memory. Like the Oilers going to the, the Stanley Cup final, the Flames going to the Stanley Cup final, even the Senators in there. Like these were like really memorable because it sort of captivated the country a little bit more because there was a run on Canadian teams getting there. But as mentioned, this was clearly a team that got hit by the salary cap dynamics changing as well. Because uh, I'll go through it here. There's random names and there's not much talent, especially from the uh, from the forward uh, group. First line, Christian Salius, Damon Lankow, Jerome McGinley. Obviously, Jerome McGinley, this is uh he was probably taking up most of the money on the salary cap. This was a Hart Trophy type of candidate player, Rocket Richard uh uh, uh candidate every year. This was one of the best players in the league. He had just come off the Olympics, just come off a Stanley Cup run with the Flames, obviously. Uh this was one of the best players in the league, and he, like Sundin, was dealt sort of a poor hand when it when it comes to accommodating talent oh yeah like this was it, it, it was really interesting to see the againless Sundin matchup here because it was two dudes who you know were legends in their own right just strapping their whole teams to their backs and trying to like forge ahead like it was it was crazy and againla man like his his hockey instincts were what really impressed me in this game i think it was the first goal that they scored it was no it was this it was the it was the tying goal the 2-2 goal uh, where he passed it to Damon Lankow, crazy, who then sniped. It was like beautiful shot on Andrew Raycroft. No, but, I think that was the four, that was the four four goal. I think was that the four four goal. It was a tying goal. I remember we'll, that. We'll we'll go through them all, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But right. it was but like Aginla, like he was fighting off like three Leafs defensemen at once on the rush. Keeps his head up the whole time and just manages to sneak it. Like it, that that's a superstar play. It was great to watch, kind of like these two legends at somewhat of the peak of their powers, kind of go head to head. Okay, we'll run through the rest of the lines a little bit quick, but stop yeah. me if you need to. Uh, next line, Alex Tangay, Matthew Lombardi, Chuck Kobusu. Lombardi Matthew and Kobusu. Lombardi. Lombardi was like one of my favorite players because he was like sort of... So I fast. Could, I could compare him to me a little bit. Like it was just a guy who was like, he couldn't do... He had no skill at all, but he could <laughs> skate a little bit. So I had this like appreciation for him. Chuck Kobusu, like he was one of those guys in that cup run, if I'm remembering correctly, that was just like 
out of nowhere contributor like Fernando Pisani type like yeah. a, a random guy who became something at this like crucial moment uh but that was for me that I was geeking out at the second line from be between Labardi and Kobasu remember the McDonald's hockey cards like in, in I don't know if they were in Happy Meals or not but we used to get hockey cards in McDonald's they were huge because keep in mind I was 10 at the time of this mm-hmm. so we were trading these and I would always get Chuck Kobasu always and i i just was like all right i guess this guy's one of my favorite players now because uh i the universe is telling me this and uh he was it's it's hilarious man like that that line i can like matthew lombardi was eventually a leaf as well i remember that and he was decent for the first little bit until he fell off a cliff alex tange uh that guy was fast man like this again i was expecting this game to be like this slow plotting game kind of a weird transition between uh you know the old kind of clutch and grab dead puck era and the new kind of post lockout but man there were so many guys on on both teams who were just way faster than i was expecting them to and and alex tange for example is the guy who really kind of stood out to me so you, when you look back at or when you think about Alex Tangates, he's like, you know, Avalanche, great, right? A part of yeah. those bit, those really important teams, uh, the teams that fought with the Detroit Red Wings in the playoffs for so long. Uh, but this was this year was his, what is it, seventh year. He had already completed six years with the Avalanche and moved on to the Flames. Then he played for a variety of other teams up until 2016. So we went from Colorado, Calgary, Montreal to Tampa, back to Calgary, back to Colorado, and then finished with the Arizona Coyotes. So he had a really weird career. It seemed like this was like, it was like we were looking at the last stages of his career, but this was earlier on than, than I expected, at least when I, when, we were, when I turned on this game. He played another decade after this game. He played another decade, yeah. That's crazy. And yeah. I, I had no idea he played until 2016. That was 15, 16 was the last season, I'm he assuming, played, right? he, Yeah, he played another decade, and his best years were way way before this year like he only finished with 22 goals well no he had he had a big year finished with 22 goals and had 81 points so he he was definitely a key player for the calgary flames but it seemed like his best years were already behind him and then he just hung on for like another you know eight nine ten years and put up sort of average numbers throughout that span that goes to show like that that's a skill in that like just sticking around like hats off to him he able he was able to milk another 10 years of an nhl uh, NHL wages, I guess, an NHL job after that. That was that's amazing. And I'm sure he made himself more money because obviously the uh, <laughs> there were some serious restraints on players making money, uh, at least in those two years. Uh, third line. Now, this is the most random line of all time. Mm-hmm. Jeff Friesen, who I didn't think played anywhere but with the San Jose Sharks. Uh, Stefan Yell, as you mentioned, is the guy yeah. getting demos Destroyed. from behind. Yeah. Uh, and Tony Amante. Tony Amante. <laughs> that was the weirdest thing ever. To see Tony Amani in a Calgary Flames uh, uniform. This was his last year in the NHL, uh, and nobody, I don't think, remembers it. I, again, like with the hockey cards, that's how I remember because I'd always get Amante too. And, like, I remember I remember him as a Flame more than I do him as a Blackhawk. Really? Yeah, oh, even though man. this guy, like, these guys, he, he scored 40 goals. He's, he's a 40-goal scorer, and he's on, like, Calgary's third line beside, like, uh, who was it? Jeff Friesen? Like it, it seemed like Calgary, their idea of um, like when the when the the salary cap kind of hit them, their idea of of cutting salary was just to get these like veterans who are clearly past their prime and sign them to really cheap deals. Because mm-hmm. that that like third that third line aside from Stefan Yell is like the oh yeah that guy played there. Like that's that's the line. Yeah, they were just trying to band it all together. 
fourth line, Marcus Nilsson. Yep. Uh, where am I here? Jamie Lundmark and Byron Ritchie. Oh, Jamie I, Lundmark. Bu- I believe Byron Ri- was Lundmark and Ritchie on that 04 Flames team, I think. I know Lundmark Maybe they played was. a really... Yeah, Lundmark for sure. Byron Ritchie just had this faint memory of him being this fast guy that didn't have much. He actually uh, broke Hal Gill's ankles early, early on in this game, which was interesting. Yes. Uh, I, I was and it, waiting and it made for you to bring of, that up. It made me sort of like come to attention of who Byron Ritchie was because I didn't remember the name uh, right away, but it sort of came to me after I was sort of had to pay attention after he did that. Uh, but that is a relatively no-name fourth line for sure. Oh, yeah, that's the most random like collection of names. Like Jamie Ludmark, they're all these fringe guys who like you remember. They're, the, they're, they're like the character actors of the NHL. Like you've seen them before, but you definitely couldn't tell like their name right off the top of your head like you've seen them in all your favorite shows but you're like who is that guy i don't know where he's from um jamie ludmark was a leaf eventually i'm pretty sure he joined the leafs in the pajama jersey era uh really? yeah it's like there's it's funny how much like sort of kind of overlap there are there, there was i guess between the the flames and the leafs moving forward here Okay, top pair, uh, it's a good one. Robin Regeer, Dion Phaneuf is, I mean, for this era of yeah. the NHL, this is not maybe not as good as it gets because, you know, Nick Lidstrom it's was close, around though. at this time. But this was, a, this was a superb top pair. Uh, Robin Regeer was, you know, dominant physically. Phaneuf was at the height of his powers, and when he was on, he was a, he was a fantastic player in those, in those short years or early years with the Calgary Flames. So that's a definite great top pair. Roman Hammerlick and Susan, what's Susan's first name? Sergey Susan? I think so. I don't know. Hold on. Let me pull it up here because like I, I you you could gun to my head. You I couldn't tell you. It's uh, gotta be Sergey. It's Andre. 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 Yeah. It was one or the other. 50-50 proposition. Sorry to yeah. the Susan clan. Uh and third pairing, and this is the this is the most interesting one. Uh Andrew Ference, Mark Girodano. Girodano only played, I think, about half the season. Andrew Ference was in the middle of his career, but these are two guys who within they'd be highly, highly relevant within the next five years. I mean, Giordano won a Norris Trophy 13 years later. Andrew Ference was a big part of those uh, the team that went to the Stanley Cup final with Calgary, I believe, uh, and then also going to and winning a Stanley Cup with the uh, Boston Bruins in a six-year span. There obviously went to the Edmonton Oilers. He was the captain there, but that did not work out very well. But two guys who uh, you know forming the makings of some really dominant pairings uh, out of the third pair for Calgary. Mark Giordano scored two goals in this game, his first and second career NHL goals. He played seven minutes, mm-hmm. and he's a defenseman. I believe he also – did he assist on Lankow's goal later too? Uh, no, he, he, only, he just had a flat two goals, but he was a part of that. Yeah, he definitely played a role in, in that one as well. It's, it's incredible. And then even – like we didn't even go – like Andrew Raycroft – and Mika Kiprasov, the two, uh, uh, the goalie matchup here too was just like it's a blast from the past. Oh, and you know what the best part of it was? Uh, it was Bob Colt. Do you know? At every game, you tee up the goaltenders, right? You do the quick flash of both of them before puck drops. But Bob Cole teeing up the starters with the Hockey Night in Canada music playing in the background, like that was something I didn't know I've been missing from my life. It was like the perfect bit of nostalgia to like get me hooked on this game and this like exercise that we were doing like it was just such a blast from the past that song cole's voice like it was perfect it's yeah it was awesome bob cole just like this was this is peak bob cole like bob cole you know he definitely 
kind of tailed off towards the end of his career as anyone would, but this was like he was firing on all cylinders. He was great. I wish I wish we could just like bottle this Bob Cole and just put it into every hockey game moving forward. His call to on uh, obviously we'll get to it. Sundin's hat trick goal, like it was, it was so good. It was like it's perfect. It was retro, classic, vintage Bob. It was, it was, it was really, really good. Uh, I think we should get into some first impressions just in the watching experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first thing, and you mentioned about the speed and how it sort of impressed you, or some guys impressed you. But when I first turned it on, those first few shifts, I could not believe how slow it was. And then this perfect little bit of irony was. Uh, Bob Cole saying it's a skating game now. Hey, Cassie, Cassie Campbell was in the booth and she responded. It sure is. It's now a fast paced NHL. And I'm watching it thinking this is the slowest hockey game I've watched in a decade. Yeah, it started off real slow. Like the the Leafs win the opening faceoff, and Brian McCabe tur- like curls back around his net, and I'm like, is am I watching on half speed right now? Like, what's going on here? And eventually picked up, but like, man, it, it it's funny how this game just started off with a thud. There was there was a few guys honestly moving with like that sort of uneasy gait that like beer leaguers have yeah. where they're not completely fixed on their skates or their balance is a little off like it looked like <laughs> it looked really bad to start. I have a theory though that our cuz once we got to the point where it was like we we were getting entertained by the game and it seemed like the pace was picking up which I'm sure it did, but I think that we just adjusted to it a little bit. I think yeah, yeah, I think I we think got acclimatized we, to it. I think if we turned on a game, there probably will be a game on tonight on Sportsnet retro whatever from this season and we'll think, "Oh my god, this is so fast just because we watched a very slow game that happened 14 years ago." Oh, yeah. Uh, like I bet it was my mind playing tricks on me. It was there were certain players and like you you kind of it was it was there's a reason why because certain players speed stood out to me and th- it's yeah. because like everyone else was slow around them and these were just like the guys who were faster than the average competition and so it just looked like they were blazing around but I bet if like you put uh, like you know side by side Matthew's first like you know four goal game in this game it would be like a, a another sport basically being played. Okay, another thing, the score bug. I mean, obviously archaic uh, in terms of what we see now in terms of graphics on TV, but I love that old CBC score, score bug. I do too, man. That it, light blue, like, man. Oh, the the nostalgia of seeing it. Like it just, I remember like watching, I would, I would tune into, because CBC used to have CFL games. I remember it was super weird because you, I would catch a glimpse of like a CFL game and they had that same score bug, but like the numbers would be like 24 to 35 or something and, and being like, whoa, I never, like, I never didn't think that score bug could go up that high. Cause it's, you know, it's only hockey games. It was just that, that it was all just such a nostalgic experience. It was great. And my last, uh, like first impression, Andy Frost, dude, what the Leafs are missing out on Andy Frost now, like the way he gave that extra oomph for the goal calls uh, inside the arena. Like you could actually hear it behind Bob Cole's oh, yeah. uh, uh, call. Like he was amazing. We do not appreciate or we did not appreciate Andy Frost enough. He was so, so good. And his call, especially on Sundin's hat-trick yeah. goal, uh, it, uh, unbelievable. Like he was so, so good at that job. It was, it was such a good reminder. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, watching this game of that. I'm going to see if the light caught. Yeah, there we go. All right. Um, no, yeah, like it's he was he was awesome. The Sundin call was fantastic where he just kind of like he's like goal scored by number 13 you know his fourth or his third of the or fourth of the season third of the game 500 of his career like it was it was awesome that that was probably the big like in terms of the Leafs do a, a lot of things in, uh, in terms of the on sort of like the, the game experience really well letting Andy Frost walk or not renewing his contract or whatever the the whole thing was was probably their biggest mistake he, yeah, he just made this game I forget when that actually happened I when that uh, when that did happen but there was a big controversy over it and I understand why because he was yeah. so good he was he incredible was so good man oh, he just had that. that gravitas to the like gravitas to the game you know he was just awesome and, and the way he was less interested in the other team's call like there was yes. definitely it was a difference to it which that's what you're supposed to do I'm not sure if I'm not sure what it is now or who does it uh, and if there's a difference, but the fact that he gave it extra for the Leafs uh, was awesome to hear. That like the Raptors do a good job of that. Like Serge Ibaka will hit a three and it'll be, a, and they'll, you know, some guy will come on him within like a French accent and say his name. And then, you know, let's say Kevin Durant hits one. It'll be like Kevin Durant. And kind of go yeah. on. And like, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. Andy Frost, he'd be like, Matt Sunday. And like, oh, and then Jerome McGinley score. would be like, cool scored by number 12, Jerome McGinley, his third of the season, assisted by Christian Uzelius time of the goal blah 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 and there was no better name that he said than matt sundin so it was appropriate uh that it stood out in this game obviously with sundin scoring three goals anything else first impressions when you started watching it anything else jump at you i noticed also the sticks like all yes. these old sticks that i used to have and like or i the ones i wanted to have at least i think uh Aginla had the old synergy that silver one that everyone had and mm-hmm. i think Fanuf had the the, uh, the green one, the neon green one as well. Yeah. So that was obviously like the only the guys who were big players at that time were, you know, getting the new sticks. And obviously FNUF was uh, quite a big deal back then. Yeah, the sticks like I'm, I'm such a huge gear nerd. Like I could tell you, you know, who everyone on the Leafs has and what their tape jobs are and stuff. And and at the time I was a huge stick nerd. I remember Matt Stajan had the stick I always wanted, which is it was a it was a synergy, but it was the the silver one. And at the bottom, it was red, like going into the blade. It was like red at right at the end and the blade, and it was it looked so sweet. Tucker had the um, what was it called? It was like a it was try something like try tri, and it was this it was this stick. It was one of those experimental sticks where like it had the rubber cap on the top. Yeah, and, uh, I was, was gonna say it was a rubber one. Yeah, yeah, it was like ribbed. It was cool, and then the Sundin, the iconic Easton Stealth with the with the the wooden extension on the top. He just like that that stick probably had like a one thousand flex in that it like didn't move at all. But that, like, it was it was an indestructible, awesome stick. I love that. 
the last uh, big impression that I had was like it was clear that the the players were still traveling the learning curve with the new oh, NHL. Yeah. With the like, there were some brutal penalties taken in this game. Like that Tucker yeah. one late was egregious. Like that wasn't his fault at all. It wouldn't be called today, but you could tell the referees were still trying to figure out what was going on. This was two years after the lockout, and the players were certainly trying to figure out what was a penalty, what was not. They were trying to fight their natural instincts because they were only two years removed from clutching and grabbing themselves and using their stick to hold up players all the time. So that took away a lot from the game. I mean, the power plays made it a little bit more exciting, uh, but like needless penalties, it seemed like, and just stuff that you would get roasted for today were happening pretty uh, habitually in this one. Yeah. Hal Gill was the probably again, like the worst afflicted by the rule changes. Like he, he took a, I, I how many penalties did he take in the game? Did you count? I feel I'm like not sure. you were no, going to, sure. But he, it was, it was insane. Like he took, he only took one penalty in the game, but it was like, it was a hooking penalty. He got just like f- five minutes into the game. It was Byron Ritchie, fourth liner. Remember walked Hal Gill harder than I've seen a modern NHL defenseman be- ever be walked. Like he, yeah. his ankles, like I could almost hear the snap of his ankles. And yet he just kind of soldiered on during the game. And you could tell little by little how Gill just kind of like was washed out of the NHL. And a lot of players just like him kind of washed out of the NHL because of that. Um, but yeah, like I, what, what really stood out to me was the sort of that a lot of players just didn't know what was like, every penalty was called was like the player just seemed dumbfounded that it was called on him. Like, great. I, yeah, go yeah. ahead, sir. No, go, go for it. I was just going to say great Paul Maurice reaction on that yes. Tucker one. Like that was so classic. That was the, like, uh, Maurice pretty expressive guy. I mean, it was a little bit different seeing him, you know, 15 years ago. Cause he looks a little bit more refined now. Uh, those glasses that he was wearing didn't exactly uh, uh, provide the best look that he's ever offered the world, but uh, it was pretty hilarious seeing him just want to blow a gasket on that late power play, which should have been or could have been, you know, dr- or brutal for the Leafs. Like it could have been the game right there, but uh, uh, obviously the hockey gods, or at least Matt Sundin, had a had a different uh, different thing to say for that. Uh, let's go through the entire game now, just like sort of period by period. We're not going to break it down. Uh, as detailed as we normally would, but that first period, it was all about the Leafs' power play. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think they got five opportunities. We saw all the great things that they were doing. They only scored once, but they had two two goals that were directly because of the power play. I mean, they scored as... uh, as one of the... Actually, both power plays. They they happened at the same time, which we'll get into. Uh, Uh... had expired so uh they only scored one of five but it, they looked really good i loved the umbrella setup with sundin cabriolet and, and mccabe that was really their best three players probably at that time and they were working they were working it to perfection on the perimeter and getting you know dangerous shots in uh and obviously it produced two goals yeah it was it was really like cassie campbell such a great broadcaster and you could tell her talent was on full display in this game too because she went uh before the penalty before the power the first power play started she was going watch out for the for Kyle Wellwood and Darcy Tucker's two-on-one play net front down low and that's exactly what happened on the first goal it was awesome Matt Sundin it's funny like we we talked about how um how Jeff O'Neill kind of was conserving his movement I guess and Matt Sundin was so smart because he didn't have to move very much yet he was always in the right position and that so he yeah like it was it was remarkable that first pen that first power play that that two-on-one goal between Wellwood and Tucker was gorgeous like if that if that was if that was a Matthews and Nylander goal that was scored now like it would be it would be gift into oblivion and everyone would be talking about how awesome it was it was awesome but what were the flames doing defensively like they 
the the just the possession that the Leafs had between those three guys at the top, it was like drawing everyone up, and it was a simple pass down low from Sundin, uh, and it just created this two on one opportunity, and and Wellwood was uh, obviously able to get it through the defenseman. I believe it was Robin Regeer for Tucker yeah. to jam home. That made it one nothing. Uh, and then later on in the period, we saw something we don't see very often in the NHL, which is two penalties called on one play. It was mm-hmm. a legitimate two penalties. I mean, one penalty happened and it was, you know, arm raised. It, 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 that was set in stone. Uh, but then I believe it was Ponikarovsky was hooked uh, at the other end on breakaway. It actually could have been a penalty shot. But they I thought it was going to be a penalty shot. They called two yeah. penalties at the same time. I, I like that. I guess it's, it's definitely happened before. It happens every now and then. But that's something Not, that could happen yeah. all the time. Because when one penalty happens usually it creates a scoring scenario where guys are just desperate and and doing whatever they can but referees are really reluctant to call that i love to see it called it was it it sort of obviously led to something to talk about because the Leafs went back on a power play after killing one of their own or killing a uh, a flames power play so they had a lot of time to work on a five on three and we saw probably that was probably the highlight of the of the game until sundin scored the hat trick was just that goal, that Sunday goal, his first, and what they were able to do with that power play. We talked about it earlier, but McCabe with the big shot fake after letting four shots go, as you mentioned uh, earlier on in that power play, just froze Kiprasov. Sundin had the chance to just wire it in, in, into an empty net. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, it wasn't a power play goal because both players had just exited the boss, the box, but uh, a little creativity, but it was creativity that was that worked because they were able to show one thing and then take it away and do something else, and and that's what we that's what we get so mad about with the least power play is that they don't have these options. They have the same thing that they're trying to do every time. And in this case, they showed something, then took it away. It's like a perfect changeup in baseball. Uh, it's just that McCabe was able to dish it off to Sunday to to hammer it home. Yeah, to your point about what Calgary was doing on the penalty kill, I think when that Sundin goal was scored, two of the th- both Flames forwards or. No, two of the Flames' three uh, penalty killers didn't have sticks. They'd lost their sticks at the time. Yeah. Which just goes to show, like, how how is that possible? How do you let that happen? Just hold on to your stick, man. It's not that hard. You know, that kind of stuff. It's, but it was because there was battles. Like, yeah. the, McCabe's shots produced these scrambles, these battles where guys were having to, like, dig into corners. And the result was, you know, defenders losing their sticks and scrambling back into position and, and trying to cover up all these, you know, offensive threats that the Leafs had. And and the reason why those power plays were successful is because of sustained possession. And that's something we just don't see from these Leafs uh, as, as often as we should. Yeah, and, and the whole thing about McCabe, like he took four point shots in a matter of less than a minute. But like that's that's exactly like to, you said this earlier. But that's exactly how he could have pulled that Calgary Flames uh, penalty killer in to then dish it off to Ma- uh, Matthews. We both done, made that mistake now in this podcast. I, I like I've been fighting it too. Like I've almost yeah. done it maybe three or four times. It's it's really weird. Your mind it's, just it's, goes to the best player, no matter like what game you're talking about. I don't know. It's and strange. they both start MAT, and you're just like, what? Um, I guess that's why. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still like they're both they're both awesome. Um, but that's that's why he could then do a shot fake and and fool that Calgary Flames uh, defender so well. Like it was like it was just it was a mastery of like all the skills on at the same time. And they didn't they didn't end up scoring on any of their other power play chances. But that five on three, I was just and also the the crowd pops in this too. Like like everyone gives. I know this was a hockey night in Canada game, but everyone gives the you know at the time it was the the Air Canada Center uh, a lot of grief for not being super loud. Man, every time the Leafs scored, that place was shaken. It was it was great to see. Yeah, 
Because these uh, fans weren't scarred yet, though. Like they. That's, that's true. Like this was this was they they hadn't made the playoffs the year before, and it was a shame. But they were still like, ah, oh, we're on, we're on the tippy top, right back where we're going. Like we got this hot shot young coach now. It's going to be great. Little did they know they wouldn't be getting back to the playoffs until uh, 2013. Yeah, a little more pop earlier in seasons before you know things start to go south. It was yes. uh, it was definitely an energetic crowd, and they had a reason to get excited. Obviously, in the end. The second period, though, wasn't all that exciting for the Leafs. They gave up the next three goals all in the second period. Uh, actually, they did score, but I believe, before the period was up to tie it, but uh, they definitely gave up the next three. So, Giordano, uh, Mark Giordano, obviously, 13 years later, Nova's Trophy winner, but he scored his first NHL goal, a true retro sort of throwback moment. Uh, and it was sort of, it was our guys. It was Chuck Kobusu and Matthew Lombardi who sort of Hell set yeah. that up. Just using their speed, they drew a bunch of defenders to them, and a pass sort of just leaked out uh, to Giordano, who was able to hammer it home. I believe he had Stajan in front for a screen. It's crazy to see that game and how Giordano looks so young and and who's just on the cusp of his career, and now he's such a dominant player and still with the Flames, the captain of the Flames now. Obviously, jumped every ladder, or jumped every space on the ladder up the uh, the Flames depth chart, at least on the back end. Uh, it's pretty cool to see that moment for him. And obviously, he's a Toronto guy, so he had a lot of people there to to savor it with him. And how much he was pinching, too. Like, he was he was sneaking down from the point. He was, he was like, he was, he was doing a lot of what, like, Jake Muzzin does for once in a while, where just, like, kind of crashes the crease and, and with the puck. Like, it was, it, for a rookie, specifically at this, in this era of the NHL, to, to be as confident to do that in the offensive zone really stood out to me. Second goal wasn't as exciting. It was uh, shorthanded on the Leafs' seventh power play attempt. So they had seven power plays, I think, around the halfway mark of the game, which is uh, pretty ridiculous. But our guy, Lombardi, again, jammed in the puck uh, after Tony Amonti, our other guy, uh, hit the glass behind Raycroft. Sort of a lucky goal, but uh, uh, obviously uh, it sort of changed the game, and it uh, it looked like the Leafs were going to run away with it uh, until this sort of sequence of goals happened. That wasn't Rick Cross's best look on the uh, the shorthanded goal. Like he just, I know that you know it was it was a weird bounce, but he completely lost any. He had no idea where the puck was and ended up just like having it tapped in. It was this was a a, a very confusing game for Raycroft because he you know he let in some real sort of you should have had them, but then it, the 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 goal that tied the game up with with uh, Matt Sundin at the end of the game that was an incredible save that he made uh, mm-hmm. that ended up with on that rush. So. This goal specifically, though, I remember putting I, I put in my notes here just like that coverage was just rough because he just he didn't know where it was and his his idea or his 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 way of reacting to that was just to kind of go starfish on the ice and uh, it didn't work. No, and it uh, didn't work for him on the third goal either. Giordano, first career NHL goal earlier, second career NHL goal in the same period. Uh, the Flames top line went to work. This the the game sort of turned on its head a little bit, obviously, uh, with the two goals that the, the Flames did score. Top line was quiet, but got to work on this one. Uh, Giordano read the cycle, jumped up, collected from McGinla, and then just cut in between, I believe it was Alex Steen and Raycroft before putting it five goal five hole. Two of his seven goals in the, in his entire rookie season were scored in one period against the Leafs and in his hometown. It just reminded me that uh the Leafs blowing leads isn't a new thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, if they, they look like they, like you said, they were going to run away with this game. They were dominating. And then you let one goal in, and it all, like, the, the house of cards just started to tumble. And thankfully, it was Alex Steen and Matt, and Matt Sundin that kind of shouldered the load and kept it together. 
so I, I I did mention I believe Steen uh, tied it up in the second period, but he and that tied was a it, weird goal. Too. He tied it up nonetheless. It was it was a really yeah it was a weird goal. Sort of just a shot trickled away from Kiprasov. It wasn't really dominant in this game at all. Uh, and Stajan was able to jam it back in front, and Steen sort of whacked it in. So we had a three three game going into the third period. But before we move on to the third period, there the was Sunday a moment. Evil. Before we go to third, there was this moment that was really strange where Chuck Kobusu, again, our guy, our just guy. sort of, he, he fell and knocked the net off and then he just threw the puck into the open net while the stoppage of play. I was thinking like, where's, if Ty Domi was still on this team, Chuck Kobusu, would, he wouldn't be doing that. And I'm like, where's Wade Belak? But I realized bench. talking to you, he only played 30 seconds and had no uh, ability to do anything. I mean, it's not a big deal, but people, hockey players just get mad when, you know, the, the play is over in a, in a opposition player puts it in their own net or into the uh into their net at least do you remember who was on the ice for the lease when that happened because i don't even remember this moment no i don't it was uh, i don't know who it was but it was it was just like wow they just let him do that i was surprised yeah it was what what also stood out to me this game like in, in you know branching off that was that hal gill was like a gentle giant like I was like this guy's freaking huge, and it, he was so much bigger than like everyone on the ice, other than Sundin. And yet he like didn't really use his size that much. And I, if he was on the ice, then I'd expect Hal Gill to just like go over and sit on Chuck Kobasi or something. But it was it was probably Hal, it was probably Hal Gill if we're being yeah. honest. If I mean, it was the other, if the it, other guys didn't play, and I probably would have noticed if McCabe would have done something. I would say. And if it was a scoring chance against the Leafs, it was probably Hal Gill on the ice. There you go. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can we talk all, about the Sundin goal? All signs point to Hal goal. Yeah, go for it. It looked like that the Sundin goal. So this is his second second goal. Yeah, his second goal, which ended up, uh, I think it was given the Leafs a four four three lead heading into the or heading into the third, um, just and just ending off the second. The shot looked like it changed direction in midair. It did. It was definitely a knuckle. Like, like how? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it hit Giordano's stick. Yeah. And, I, like, and right when I saw it, I was just envisioning like if if, if this happened in the first period. Don Cherry would have put it on his segment and said, "Listen, you youngster, like this is a this is yes. a young guy, Mark Giordano. This young guy's got to learn that he can't get his stick in those shooting lanes because this is what happens. You get a knuckle puck floating over the shoulder of Mika Kiprasov to to tie the game. I thought initially that Kiprasov knocked it down himself with just like the knob of his stick and it kind of dropped in, uh, but he didn't touch it. it. It seemed like it went straight in and took a really weird trajectory." Yeah, it, like to me, it looked like it almost rode up the paddle of, of Kippersov's stick and he had like no idea what he was doing. But it, this was like, like physics doesn't work that way. I don't know what happened on this goal, but it just like the puck was flipping. And then at a certain point, it looked like it was going towards Kippersov's chest. And then it looked like it just did a sharp like uptick into the top corner. But it was all three of Sundin's goals were snipes. Like his shot was awesome. Like we talked about Matthew's shot, buddy. Matt Sundin picks corners like it, it was his day job to pick corners. Literally, it was incredible. Picks corners and also like bends it like Beckham, I guess as well, because that that didn't go in a straight line. That was uh, definitely oh yeah uh, using other biomechanical forces to score that one or uh, mystical forces. Mystical forces. Okay, I'll go with. But I mean, what biomechanical? Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we go to the third, which the Leafs blew another lead. Uh, yeah, that was goal number four ninety nine for. For Matt Sundin. Now, as good as Cole and Cassie were in this game, like they didn't notice that right away. They also yeah. didn't notice that it was Giordano's first NHL goal right away. Like you could tell in both of those instances, uh, someone just tapped Cole on the shoulder and say, "Hey, that was that was uh, Giordano's first. So mention that." He's like, "Oh, and, oh," uh, and Matt Sundin. He's now close to 500, so you should probably mention that. Like it, it seemed like 
uh, he was getting, they just weren't on the ball in that sense. Like it was, these are two big moments, like milestone moments potentially. Yeah. And then he was all over 500 when he, when he obviously had that fresh in his mind. Uh, Cause his call on 500 was really, really good. But like the fact that he was getting close to that was definitely a huge part of the story. Uh, and fans, if you weren't, you know, really up on it, you might not have known for a while, or at least until he was reminded that Matt Sundin had the chance to do something pretty remarkable, which he obviously did later on. Like I went, I went, uh, I went off the window after Giordano scored, and I was taking notes. And so and then that's, that must have been how it slipped through. But I like didn't know it was Giordano's first career NHL goal, NHL goal until he scored his second of the game. And then exactly, Cole was like, "It's his second of career NHL goal." I'm like, "Wait, what? Did you not <laughs> want to mention the fact that like this dude just scored his first goal in his hometown against the Leafs? Like, it's crazy." Yeah, I definitely. Uh, that's why the stack. That's what the stat guys uh, get paid the big bucks for. Yeah. Uh, the third period was great, actually. There was only mm-hmm. one goal. It was really entertaining. I thought, you know, Sundin and Aginla were at their best in the entire game in this period. Like, it was it was really exciting, them to those two guys going back and forth. Uh, just one goal, though, as I mentioned, and it was Aginla's moment. He sort of uh, beautiful. picked up a loose puck and, like, just waited long enough for everyone to converge on him uh, before dishing it over to Lankow, who, who sniped one on uh, Andrew Raycroft to make it 4-4. Uh, which, you know, set the stage for future overtime. But uh, that was definitely a goal worth uh, noting for sure. It's funny because on the broadcast when Lankow scored, they're like, oh, no one's stopping that. That sh- that shot was so good. No one's stopping it, no matter who's in net. And I'm like... Uh, I thought I thought of you exa- when... I, I don't know who said that. I think, <laughs> I think Cassie said it, but I'm like, I'm sure Mikey probably figured that a goalie should have stopped that one. Uh, yeah, like it looked, it was one of those where if like Anderson let that in, like Twitter would have destroyed him, uh, right. because it was, look, it was a nice shot, but it was like, he was like right in, like Lankow was right in front of, uh, Raycroft and it was just like, all he had to do was kind of shrug his shoulders and keep it out. It was like, it looked like a nice shot, but like that, like the NHL goalie should stop that shot. But he didn't. That gave us a chance for overtime and, you know, this big, big moment and, and why we're talking about this game and why it uh, was one that immediately popped to mind when we talked about doing a rewatchable series. Matt Sundin scoring his 500th career NHL goal. Uh, almost, I think like 396 or something with the Leafs. Obviously, he scored a bunch before he came over in a trade. But uh, a pretty, like when you look back on Matt Sundin's career, this is one moment that will be included on every highlight tape that will be made about him. Uh, even though it wasn't that nice of a goal, like I re- what? you you remembered in your mind being nicer than that. It was awesome. It that was, was awesome. An incredible goal. It was a better highlight than it was a goal. What do you mean by that? Like it's just like there's elements to it. Like my favorite part of the goal is just the fact that Kiprasov knows he's beat right away and immediately starts sprinting out of his net. Yeah, like it that makes the highlight. Like there's and the and the celebrations great. The call was great. Like, all of that made it so good. But really, all he does is lug the puck slowly through neutral ice and clap bomb over the shoulder of Kiprasov. But he made that whole play happen by himself. A, I forgot. No, sh- no. Okay, I'll let you go, but I, I have a counter for that. No, go, go ahead. You, you're, you're clearly passionate about okay, this. My, right? hot, my hot take was that Hal Gill made this goal. Okay. Okay. So, your, okay, so what Hal Gill's stretch passes were like low key, really impressive in this game. I did. I was not expecting Hal Gill to have like Timothy Lilligren or like Morgan Riley stretch passes. Hal Gill, man, he got burned once, but he made this goal happen for me because. Okay, so what happens is Fanuf gives Tangay a bad pass, and Sundin's able to sort of wedge his way in there and and gain possession while like pushing Tangay behind him. 
But what was weird about the play was that Gill, Hal Gill and Brian McCabe are the two, two defensemen out there, and they immediately push up. So they left Jerome McGinley, I think, all alone. So if Sundin got stripped or whatever, like it was game over because they had just jailbreak toward the blue line for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Just, I guess, because that they knew Matt Sundin had the, had the possession of the puck. But what happened with Hal Gill is he raced up and forced Dion Phaneuf to back off because if he didn't, like if he had just attacked Sundin and tried to sort of end the play and neutralize, he could have just chipped it past enough and how Gill would be skating away which would probably be the preferred option obviously uh but Sundin was given all the time and space to move up and cross the blue line and fire because the two defensemen had pushed up and backed off the defense that's the only reason why the goal happened because Hal Gill had this heads up offensive play and cleared the way for Sundin to move through neutralize I can't argue with that that was eloquently said although Sundin did win the board battle he did. which then he stripped he did the- most of everything but yes yeah. but like it was that wouldn't have happened without Hal Gill but then Sundin won the board battle stripped it lugged it in the center ice as you said you know just like sluggishly lugged it no no fun or pizzazz or anything and then just from like as a forward from the blue line wired it past the probably best goalie in the league at that moment but yeah you're right it wasn't wasn't that cool of a goal no it was cool because what made it cool was like it just wasn't that like overly skillful no or whatever. I know. it was just it like wasn't a deke or anything. what made it amazing was like this lackadaisical movement like he was just moving slow and he was casually going and he casually wound up and just hammered it but like nothing about it was like the greatness of matt sundin it was just like him sort of lulling Kiprasov to sleep a little bit with the way he was moving, the situation. I mean, he easily could have just dumped it in, but he decided to take the space that he had uh, and just casually rip one. And it was like the change of pace. It was it was like a starting pitcher, like I mentioned earlier. It was, this, it was how slow he was moving and how, like not like not disinterested but not like overly intentful but the way the puck came off his stick was like the 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 contrast that made the goal and then all the other elements that made it so special obviously with the milestone and with the other cool things that that were happening in the moment yeah he was moving like a cruise ship like it was like you know exactly he was big and it was kind of like stocky and then it would just kind of turn or turn like that but like he got he got a hat trick he won the game pretty much single-handedly like it was it was incredible. Like Matt Sundin, this was one of Matt Sundin's best games as a Leaf just because like it was a prime example of him putting the team on his back. And he also had an assist as well, like on the first goal. Like, it was a four-point night. Like this guy, and think about who else, like Matt Sundin played friggin' uh, 22 minutes in this game, which isn't, which was less than I thought it was going to be considering the, all the people around him. But like, man, that, that, could you think, other than like maybe a, because you wouldn't count them in the playoffs, but like, I couldn't think of a more perfect way for him to score his 500th goal. Like in overtime on a slap shot that he loves to take so much against another Canadian team on Hockey Night in Canada. Remarkable. No, it was perfect. I mean, it was it was exactly how it should have been. And also, he had a little bit more room on the ice because there was only seven skaters. I guess it was a four on three. And yeah. like the best thing about Matt Sundin's celebrations is that he's above everyone all the time. Like he's just like... He's got this like really happy smile and he's towering over everyone and it just gave him room for him to skate across the ice with his hands in the air and everyone to come to him. So that is another reason that made it pretty cool as well. The celebration was also great. Like all the co- what, what really stood out to me was all the coaches stayed on the bench and applauded it. Because yeah. like you'd see norm- normally a guy wins an, o- wins an overtime, the coaches shake hands and then immediately walk kind of off the ice. But like all the coaches stayed on. There was Maurice and his whole staff giving him the clap. 
And uh, the crowd, like, again, you know, everyone gave the ACC a lot of flack for not being the loudest uh, building in the league. But this, that was like a playoff game when they, like a playoff OT winner when that goal was scored. Like they, like the pop specifically was awesome. And I remember being in my grandparents' basement and losing my mind at that goal. Like just like, you know, like completely high on sugar, 10 year old Mike (laughs) losing my mind, you know, running around this basement. Uh, but it was like that's what Matt Sundin did to people back in the day was like he gave he was like the at this point on the team, like one of the lone bright spots. And he in in in, a, in what was eventually going to be a very long season. And he was just awesome. A definite where were you moment. Uh, that's the game. Is there another uh, little bit you want to get to? Uh, I think, yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we're doing a rewatchables thing and the ringer does a great job on doing rewatchables podcasts. Uh, they do it with movies. Justin doesn't watch movies. Fun, fun little trivia fact about him. So we'll do them for, we'll do them for hockey. And so uh, the two that I guess apply the best here, um, or we could do three. So they're what, you know, what age the best, what age the worst. And we'll both have our our instance about that. And then the last one is Apex Mountain. And Apex Mountain is a a time at the height of someone's career, like the height of someone's powers. So what was, you know, like we could we could do with anyone. So I guess I'll open it up to you. What age the the what age the best for you? Oh, what age the best? Wow. Uh, Let me quickly have a scan. Do you have one just so I can uh, have time to think? For me, it was Mark Giordano. Like for me, it was. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. It's got to be. yeah, like it, but it was just like it, it was funny to watch it through through the lens of this game because I didn't notice him that much until he scored, and then I was like, "What?" Mark Giordano and it ended up being his first his first NHL goal, but like this guy was doing a lot of the same stuff that he's doing now as like a thirty six or thirty seven year old you know captain, but as a rookie, he just like his his style of play I think aged the best because he was an offensively aggressive defenseman. He made the most of his ice time. He played seven minutes and he scored two goals. It was it was fantastic. I mean, I don't think there's really an argument there. Not Sigelbov. In terms, of, like, who aged the best? It's got to be. I mean, I'm, I'm ready for who aged the worst, though. Who aged the worst for you? So Chuck Kobusu, as we mentioned, you know, he didn't have, he didn't actually. Our do, guy. He didn't actually do anything in the of uh, 04 Cup run, even though it seemed like he did. He had one assist in 26 games. <laughs> wow. But he stayed okay. in the lineup the whole time. Though. But he stayed in the lineup the whole time. I'm sure he played a key intangible role but he was traded to the boston bruins that same season uh that we just watched 2006 to 07 and he had a 22 goal season with the boston bruins but there's a lot of single digits here he played until 2014 and we're talking like nine goals nine goals seven goals five goals two goals like he did not do much after uh you know exciting both of us with his play with the calgary flames in in 04 so who aged the worst there are there are worse you know options here i mean obviously suglabov didn't do anything and john pole i mean johnny pole as much as we love the name he he really sort of shrunk after this season uh but just you know the expectations with kobasu man i gotta go with kobasu for who aged the worst if i okay I, I promise I don't have it up in front of me, but like I want to guess the last team that Chuck Kobasu played for. So I feel like I have a, for it. an image. Was it Minnesota? He No, he played on ah. two more teams after Minnesota, but Minnesota is really where it started to go da- down. Who is, the who Boston Bruins sold on him at the right time. So he had two 20-goal seasons with Boston. Then they traded him to Minnesota, it looks like, unless it was like a waving and, you know, pick up trans another transactional thing uh but he had two seasons in minnesota where he did not much uh two seasons with the colorado avalanche where he did Ah. not much and his last season was with the pittsburgh penguins 33 games two goals two points 
and he moved on to Switzerland uh, after that and played until 2016. Pittsburgh Penguins. Wow. Um, for me, age the worst is definitely Kyle Wellwood. Like this guy was this True. guy was awesome, and I remember at the time because this was right around the time where you know this was when Datsuk reigned supreme in the NHL. Like when right around the time when YouTube was starting to be big, and I remember going over to my friends' houses and watching Datsuk goal compilations and being like, "Whoa, this guy's so sick!" And uh, like Kyle Wellwood had a lot of the same kind of like things as, as Datsuk like he was he had some crazy hands he was really he was short but he was able to to score these really nice highlight real goals and in this game specifically like again I had huge Mitch Marner vibes coming from him because he was just dishing the puck left and right he was great on the power play he was this short but you know I know that he wasn't super fast but he was this short kind of like really skilled guy and at the time the there was this whole buzz around you know any Leaf fan especially young Leafs fans being like yo this they really got someone great in Kyle Wellwood he's gonna be awesome and then he just went nowhere. He had one sort of like resurgence year with the Jets, I think, before yep. he then hung it up. But like eighteen goals and forty-seven points in seventy-seven games in 2011-12, which was well, just out out of nowhere with the Winnipeg yeah. Jets. Yeah. And then what? And then what happened after that? One more season where you know injury shortened, I guess, or just you know coach's decision. But he only played thirty-nine games, scored six goals, fifteen points. That's still not terrible, though. He had like, the weird weirdest career because like yeah, this. 0607, which was the year that this game was from, he scored 12 goals, 42 points in 48 games. So obviously this was a career year from a per game production standpoint, but it was shortened, right? Because he only mm-hmm. played 48 games. Then he fell off the map with only 21 points in 59 games with the Leafs. Moved on yeah, to, Vancouver, to Vancouver, and he had the weird like an 18 goal nine assists. Like this is supposed to be a guy who's you know supposed to pick up assists. Like that just seems like a weird number. Uh, stayed there for two years before going to Russia. Back to San Jose uh, in the same year that he played in Russia, and then had those two up and those two seasons, which was the career high in terms of points, uh, at least at the NHL level, with 47 in 11-12, uh, and then 15 points before his career was basically over uh, after the 2012-13 season. So in that 06 or 07-08, if if I don't even know why how they have this information, but for me, uh, I'm seeing on hockey on hockey reference that. Kyle Wellwood finished 83rd in the voting for the Lady Bing that year. So, congrats to him. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's 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 in his in major awards. He has nothing but his highest finish was 18th in the Lady Bing and he was never in the consideration for any of the He had, he had such a crazy career like you said. Like he went to Russia midway through came back. Um he also what what was crazy about th- about this year is that like, you know, it was his it was his career best year despite the fact he was only in 48 games. He was he shot 12.1%, which is like pretty sustainable, but the season that he came back and and he he really kind of lit it up for for Winnipeg, he was shooting almost 20. So yeah. you could definitely tell that was a bit of a that was before sort of the analytics crowd came in onto the scene or else I feel like a lot of a lot of stat statisticians or stat departments could have told the GMs, "Hey, you know, this is pretty unsustainable. Maybe sell this guy at the deadline or something." And that was the year Winnipeg came back, was it? 2011-12? Yeah, I think so, I think he was... Was he so an OG Jet? Wow. He, he might not have only had that opportunity if it wasn't for... Well, I guess it was an expansion, but maybe just like, uh, you know, retooling the roster, overhauling the roster, whatever. That was sort of his way back in, was such a change in circumstances with uh, Atlanta moving to Winnipeg. But yeah, such a really, really weird career. Uh, and I wonder who he played with in Winnipeg, because... Clearly, his best years, I think... Andrew probably, maybe. 
they were tied to Matt Sundin, right? Who'd he go and play in Vancouver with? I don't know, but he had some decent points there. But that that is certainly a weird year where he uh, sort of randomly just had one more year of production in the NHL. Uh, that's the Kyle Wellwood story, I guess. It's the it's the dead cat bounce. Like you know, you throw a dead cat at the ground and it'll bounce up, and you think it's you know you think it's back to life, and it's ultimately dead, and that's what happened. But did he like you you know? The, the Jets were just opening up. You got to sell tickets. You got to sign marquee guys for your first season. So of course you go out and get Kyle Wellwood. It's the only guy you go out and get. Exactly. Was and also like he probably could have played with Andropov on that uh, that Jets line because or that Jets team because Andropov was no G Jet too. It's possible. It's possible. That's that's crazy. So the last one is Apex Mountain. Yeah. So it's got to like, be it's got to be Dion Phaneuf, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Dion Phaneuf's best years were right around this time. I mean, he, he emerged as a, a dominant player rookie year. I believe the rookie year was the year before yeah. uh, this year. Uh, and as you mentioned, he was nominated for the Norris Trophy, I believe, in this year. I don't know if he was at his best in this game. I, I didn't really notice him that much, other than him and Darcy Tucker colliding got, all the time. He got walked by Tucker, so probably yeah, not. Yeah, it but. seemed to be uh, maybe Tucker won this round, but this was uh, this was when Dion Phaneuf was something special and definitely like he he was appointment viewing early in his career when uh, you know the World Juniors gave him sort of that platform. But he was an exciting guy, and that's obviously uh, part of the reason the Leafs went out and tried to. Uh, sort of shore up their entire team with a trade involving Phaneuf, I guess, was three years later? Was, uh, I, I, I would reckon that uh, that Phaneuf's Apex Mountain was the moment in the World Junior Championships in like 2006 or something when he hit two guys at the same time and Pierre Maguire almost had a heart attack on air by yelling, it's a double Dion. Definitely um, was that. Yeah. One of my favorite calls ever. No, but yeah, you're 100% right. Like, I, I have no, I, I'm with you on that one. Like, this was, Dion Phaneuf was talked about and was, like, held in the kind of regard as one of the best, not just young players in the league, but one of the best players in the league. And he'll always be able to say that in the year that Ovechkin and Crosby both debuted in the NHL, he was the third Calder nominee. It's pretty impressive. Very but, impressive. I mean, and it shouldn't be hard to, or it shouldn't be, you know, difficult to see what happened in his career. The way he played... Uh, oh, yeah. It was it was it was uh, always going to be uh, a limited time or uh, a limited shelf li- shelf life on what he was going to be able to do or how long he was going to be able to do what he did at the NHL level. The weird thing was the way his offensive game seemed to fall off. Like it, sh- he went from this guy who was like I don't know if he led all defensemen in, in scoring one year, at least from goal scoring, uh, but he was up there one year early on, and then it all just fell apart. And it certainly wasn't there when he was with the Maple Leafs. So uh, he's another one, a, a really strange career, but one at least that follows a trajectory that is more understandable, at least compared to Kyle Wellwood. Like, think, like, li- listen to this. Like, he started as a rookie. Tw- he had a 20 goal season as a defenseman, as a rookie. 20 goals, 29 assists, 49 points. This season, or yeah, 06, 07, he finished with 50 points, 17 goals, 33 assists. The next season, um, no, it was the next season he was a runner he, a runner up. So it wasn't it wasn't the season we're talking about this time. It was the it was the oh seven oh eight season where he was um a runner up for the uh what is Norris? the A yeah, he was also a first team all star in in oh six or oh seven oh eight. Like a like it was it was awesome. Um, okay, he was so he was a, he was approaching Apex then. He was yes, really close. This is probably like his his apex. Like he would think this it was crazy. Like at the time he was he was in that 07-08 season, he was logging 26-25 a night, 
Uh, he finished with 60 points, 17 goals, 43 assists. The next season, he was in Calgary, 47 points. And then it just all dropped off from there. And the next closest he got was 44 with Toronto in, in 11-12. And then just nowhere. So, uh, yeah, like it was it was, it was was pretty remarkable. This guy was, was so different. Now, one thing that was also funny enough to say, like he scored 17 goals that season and he shot 6.5%. Wow. That's insane yeah. as a defenseman. One thing that really stood out to me before I guess we wrap is that like Dion Phaneuf's calling card with his sh- was his shot, like his point shot. He had a, a wicked, you know, kind of clapper. I saw him fan on point shots so like like more times than I th- saw him connect on net in this game. Yeah, I, I, I it's remarkable how fell how far his like offensive prowess fell. Like starting with twenty goals, seventeen goals, seventeen goals two more double digit seasons and then only one more out of the next it looks like 12 years where it's like three three one nine three like it's it's he just became uh such a non-factor from an offensive perspective when he looked like he was going to be the next sort of breed of power play quarterback in the same vein that McCabe was this dangerous guy for the Leafs like he looked like he was going to be that and more just with the way he shot the puck and then all of a sudden uh it just wasn't there for him yeah he finished he his his it's funny, like his first NHL season was 20 goals, 49 points as a defenseman. His last one was in 67 games with the Kings. He had one goal, five assists, six points, minus 21. He, yeah, th- that, that was, this was probably Dion Phaneuf approaching at least his apex mountain. But in terms of anyone on the ice at, the, at that moment, definitely apex. At least like more than anyone else. If we're doing like average apex, maybe like Matt, this was probably Matthew Lombardi's apex or something, <laughs> yeah. but like yeah. Dion Phaneuf for sure. Well, that was uh, a lot better than, you know, what we've been doing the past couple episodes, which is, you know, Doom and just trying to track what's going on and uh, how COVID-19 is, is affecting the NHL and what the NHL might do in its uh, its efforts to get things back on track when they're given the opportunity or when it's given the opportunity to get back on track. So we will try to do this again. Uh, you guys, anyone listening to this episode, I mean, we're an hour, 22 minutes in. So if you made it this far, give us some suggestions on what games you might want to see. We might have to track that just based on what Sportsnet's playing. But uh, if there's a game on and we should talk about it, let us know and we'll make sure to either PVR it or watch it again. Uh, But we should try to mix this in as much as possible because Mm -hmm. this was a little bit more uh, fun to talk about. And when it's more fun to talk about, it's probably a little bit more entertaining for those who are uh, looking for anything they can chew on when it comes to the Leafs and, and NHL hockey, really. Absolutely. Yeah, this is just this was one of the most the fun breaks in uh, in the world of isolation. I'm glad we don't have to talk about the world kind of coming to a halt and we get to to talk about how Chuck Kobasu's career took a turn for the worse in 2006. Poor Chuck. Poor Chuck. Uh, so that doesn't mean we won't be talking about what's happening with the coronavirus in the NHL. Obviously, we'll have updates probably at some point in this week. Uh, but we'll have our next, uh, whether it's a listicle, whether it's grades, whether it's, uh, you know, something about what's going on, what happened with this previous leaf season, or it's a game from, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, we're going to try and do some more fun things and mix that in with the, the updates as they come, uh, over the next weeks and hopefully not months. But, uh, if we're being honest, it's probably going to look like that. So, uh, I think that's it. We'll try and uh, we'll reconvene later this week or uh, in the next few days and uh, we'll chat then. Bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.